0: Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the first section, the first daily section of the weekly Torah portion of Genesis, of Bereshit, in the book of Genesis, Bereshit. Bereshit, bara Elohim et ha-shamayim ve'eta aret. In the beginning, God created the heaven, or the skies, and the earth. Translating and commenting on the Torah, especially the book of Genesis, and more especially the story of creation, is no easy task. We could spend hours just on the first syllable of the first word, the preposition bi, in. Just take a look at Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Ramban, and you'll see an enormous amount of writing on that one letter or that one syllable. I can't compete with any of that or any of these commentaries on the book of Genesis or on any of the Torah. So instead, I'll try to explain the basic structure of the chapter and to discuss some central elements and ideas. And hopefully these will be a a starting point for further exploration into the Torah. Before embarking on the translation explanations, I should point out that as opposed to the chapter-by-chapter format of the OU's Nach program, this program is is loosely based on Shtayim Mikra Echad Targum, which means read a Torah verse twice and its translation once. This requirement, which is based on the need for every Jew to be minimally familiar with the Torah in a language that he or she can understand, follows a yearly cycle that breaks down the Torah into 54 portions. Most people call these portions parshot, but I think the word sidrot is a better term, and that's what I'll use um, while I'm doing my uh, lessons by reading around one sidra a week on Shabbat on the Sabbath, the Torah could be repeated once a year. Remember that a Jewish year ranges between 50 weeks a lunar year and almost 55 weeks depending on whether there's a leap month inserted in there or not. So about 54 pers- portions portions uh, works out well. In turn, each Sidra, each weekly Torah reading, was broken down into seven portions, which allowed for seven people on the Sabbath to be called up, or to be, to get what is called an aliyah to the Torah, and each one of them would recite, or at least they would recite a blessing on that portion. Many people starting, uh, therefore starting with Monday, or perhaps Saturday night, would read to themselves one of these daily portions, each one a day, and therefore they would complete the weekly Sidra, um, every week. Now, even in the back of the Talmud, people lost the skill of speaking and understanding Hebrew very well, which had become a dead language that it wasn't a spoken language, and this required translations to be written. The most famous, although not the earliest, of these translations was written in Aramaic by the convert Unculus. Unculus's translation, his Aramaic translation, became the standard, albeit not the only Aramaic translation. What's special about an Aramaic translation is that the Aramaic is a cognate language to Hebrew. And as such, it can stay very close to the original text. Another language, a non-cognate language, for example, the Greek translation, in contrast, which, by the way, is 400 years older than Unculus' Aramaic translation, and certainly the Greek translation is of very important value. However, it's written in a language that often has, it's not a cognate to Hebrew, and therefore it very often has no one-to-one relation to Hebrew words or expressions, and therefore it leads the translator to, or requires the translator to occasionally paraphrase the original. Unfortunately, translating to Aramaic here, keeping in the strict sense of the law of will not help any of us here, since Aramaic is not widely spoken. According to the Shulchan Aruch, an alternative is reading Rashi, Um, And that could be substituted for the Aramaic. However, Rashi himself uh, doesn't comment on every single word. So in the spirit of this uh, idea that one can call on uh, different tools to help one's understanding of the Torah, I hope that this English translation, along with some of my elucidations, will make do for the spirit, if not the letter of the law of Shtayim Mikra Echad Targum. As I said, the very first letter of the Torah is difficult and raises the question, in the beginning of what did God create the heavens and the earth? Does he mean in the beginning of time, or it was the first thing that God created? If so, in fact, we'll see that the heavens are not the first thing that that is created uh, they're not created until verse 6. And even stranger, the earth is never created. It's never commanded into existence from nothing. It's actually assumed to have already been there, albeit it is covered by deep waters, which require uh, separating in order to reveal the earth. So it may be that the sense of the verse is as follows. In the beginning of the process of the creation of the heavens and the earth, not all of, of whose details will be described, when, v'ha'aretz ha'itato When the land was unformed and desolate and darkness was on the face of the deep, of the abyss, and a great wind stirred up the surface of the waters, the first thing that God did was, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now there are a few things to notice and comment on here. First of all, the word tohu is used in different places in Tanakh to to describe the process of being torn down. It's the opposite of uh, building up a structure. It's tearing down a structure. It it indicates a return to chaos and to nothingness. The word bohu actually is never used by itself. It always accompanies the word tohu. That is, tohu is sometimes used by itself, but bohu always comes with the combination of tohu and vohu. So it's really hard to get an exact translation. um, one could go with desolate, if you look at the Aramaic translation, dry, deserted, barren. I like the idea of chaos, as if all matter is scattered and unformed, unglued, until the world is fashioned. The word to home is translated in the Greek as the abyss, and I think that's just perfect. Um, most translate the word Ruach Elohim. You may have noticed that I think I deviated from the standard uh, translation. Uh, most people translate Ruach Elohim as the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. But first of all, Merach Hefet does not mean to hover over. It means to agitate or to stir up. And the word Elohim is sometimes used in Tanakh not to mean God, but to be an adjective applied to something mundane, meaning great or powerful, like a powerful hunter or a powerful city. It could be called an ear Uh, um, So, to be honest, I don't see this as the Spirit of God hovering over the the waters. What I think is happening is that there are these hurricane-like winds which are stirring up the waters into a great cascade of destruction and never-ending chaos, uh, which prevent the formation of life. Um, another note: the word "vayomer," um, of course, that doesn't mean that God just spoke, but that He willed it into existence. In fact, the Rambam doesn't like the idea that God speaks at all, since God doesn't have vocal cords or a mouth. So, therefore, he says that "vayomer" means "and God thought." And this is usually the connotation um, that, or very often the connotation that one gets when God speaks to His pro- uh, to. Um, not directly to his prophets, but to other things of the world. For instance, the story of Jonah, when it says that God spoke to the fish to spit out Jonah, so the Radak comments right on the spot, uh, not that he spoke, but that he willed it or commanded it. Now, the first thing that God does will into existence in this beginning of the process of creating the heavens of the earth, the first thing that he creates in order to allow life to form is light. Vayar Elohim et ha'or kitov. Vayavdel Elohim ben ha'or uven And God saw that the light was good, um, and He created a separation between the light and the darkness, which apparently already existed in the absence of light. Note that the actual order of the words are, he saw the light, that it was good. And the reason why it's out of order is it kind of highlights the light. Instead of saying the more grammatical but less exciting, "Vayar lohim kitova." or, and God saw that the light was good, it's more like he's pointing at the light saying, ooh, that light, that is very, very good. Or in this case, just good. Vaiikra Lohimla or Yom Villa Hoshak Karalila Vai Ere Vaiiver Yomekad and God called the light daytime and at the same time he called the darkness night and there was evening and there was morning, which makes day number one or completes day number one. The reason why I inserted the words at the same time is because it says Vayikra. So we would have expected Vayikra et choshech, but it uses a past tense form of the word Kara. So when you have a future tense Vayikra and then the past form, which is Kara. So it means that those two things are happening simultaneously. At this point, I'd like to uh, mention that many people have problems coordinating modern scientific knowledge uh, with the story of creation as we're presented here in the Torah. For instance, it is clear that the sun is needed for vegetation to grow, but here in this description, vegetation comes on day number three on the earth and the sun only comes on day number four. Uh, The error is in assuming that the Torah is a science textbook. So, let me state that in my humble opinion, that the story of creation, as being described here, was never intended to be a science lesson, and this is absolutely clear from the schematic rather than scientific design of the chapter. And let me explain. Of the six days of creation, day number one matches day number four. Day number two matches day number five. And day number three matches day number six. Things are laid out in a creative way, in a schematic way. On day number one, we have light. And on day number four, it's schematic matching day. We have things that contain the light, the stars, the moon, the sun, or reflect the light. On day number two, we have the creation of the seas, the lower waters. And on day number five, it's matching day, we have all the things that come from the waters or that live in the waters. On day number three, we have the earth uncovered or created, covered in vegetation. And on day number six, we have all the creatures that inhabit the earth and benefit from that vegetation. This is a completely schematic description of creation whose point is not scientific, but whose point is religious. The religious point is God created the foundations first step 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 day one two three for the purpose of creating a functional place for things to populate them on day number four 5 and 6. Another schematism is this idea of division. God causes and controls and maintains the separations that allow the foundations and therefore the life and intelligent life that rests on those foundations to exist. On day number 1, God separates light and darkness. On day number 2, he separates the upper and the lower waters, a horizontal separation. On day number 3, he separates waters and therefore reveals the land. And that is a vertical separation of the waters again this is schematic not scientific it is a religious description that in every dimension that you care to think God is control over the creation process and this process of dividing and conquering so to speak is what allows creation and, ex- and life to exist if there happen to be some scientific truths in it, such as the fact that the first thing that's created, apparently, is light. And we do know that photons are the building block of not only all matter, but all space-time as well. So that's fine. I mean, incidentally, there's going to be some scientific truths which are related in this religious message. But that's not the message that God is trying to get across. God is not trying to write a science, of book of physics. He's trying to write a book of, he's writing a book of metaphysics. And therefore, he describes things a schematic way because because it presents a moral or religious lesson and sometimes that schematism or for the sake of that ske- schematism not only is it unscientific but it's a asci- or anti-scientific because science must bend to the need of presenting a schematic and religious message there's so much more to talk about here such as the idea of night coming before day in the process of creation and in Jewish law of course we know that evening comes before morning oh, however not every commentator said that's true rashi's son the grand uh, rajbam says that that's not true, that day becomes for night, it's impossible to cover everything as I said. So it's not it's not really worth trying, and therefore again it's incredibly important to continue an in, in depth pursuit of all of Torah material. And now, on to day number two. And God said, or willed, let there be a firmament between the waters, and let it separate between the waters and the waters. The word rakia, or firmament, comes from the verb to plate, like a, like a gold or silver plating around something. Because the sky was seen as kind of a stretched out plating across the, across the heavens. The Greeks also translated this way. They translated it as which means to stretch out side to side as in the word stereo stereophonic means when a sound a phone is stretched side to side notice that almost every Um, will of God let there be this and let there be that is then followed by its actualization and God made the firmament and he separated between the waters that were under the firmament and the waters that were over the firmament and it was so, which means, and it came out exactly as God wanted it to and God called the firmament, firmament skies and there was evening and there was morning, day number two to. Shamayim, of course, can mean uh, either heavens in a supernatural sense or skies in a natural sense. And it seems quite clear that the latter meaning, the natural sky, is that which is being used here in uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. When you see words like Shemeha shamayim so that really indicates um, a supernatural setting where the angels and where God resides. The lower waters are, of course, the seas. And the upper waters, well, they're more difficult to explain uh, perhaps it's something supernatural, like uh, like uh, the Shemei Shamayim, the heavens. Perhaps it's referring to space. Uh, perhaps it's the part of the water cycle, the way the rain comes down from the skies. Um, it's hard to really pin down. So I'll continue on to day number three. Now... Now that there are def- definite, that is, well-defined, lower waters, they need to be split as well, vertically this time, rather than horizontally. And God said, or will, let the waters that are under the skies be collected into one place so that the dry land will appear. And it was so. Vahim Lavasha Eretlimmikve Hamim kar Mim Vayarlohim Kitov and God called the dry land earth, and the collection of waters he called oceans. And God saw that it was good. Now, you may have noticed that God did not see that anything was good on the second day. And as a result of this, there is a Jewish tradition that says that Mondays are given to very unfortunate events. They are times of of bad luck, bad omen, so to speak. Uh, I guess anybody who goes back to work every Monday feels this way also. However, the plain reason for the lack of marking anything good on day number two is that the process of the water division, which was started on day number two, wasn't completed until day number three. Three, and therefore, it was not ready for God's approbation until the vertical split was done as well. As we see, as we will see, the words "Vayar Kito"v indicate that God has completed a definite, a definite, distinctive act of creation. The syntax of this verse is very difficult, but we'll go with and God saw that the earth, uh, God said or will, that the earth should sprout forth grasses, vegetation that contains seeds, and fruit trees that produce fruit according to their type, and which have seeds in them that is in the fruits, all of these things being on the earth and it was so. This is a very challenging verse, especially as it does not match the next verse, which describes the actual flowering of all of these things. It is way beyond the scope of this lesson to go through all the difficulties and and syntax problems and semantic issues. Instead, I'll just say that the point of this verse seems to be that God made vegetation in a way that was, A, reproductive, that is, it had seeds, the ability to reproduce itself, and in such a way that one, that man, who we'll see later, can predict and control this specialization, this specialization of uh, the various species. As we will see, all of this creation is ultimately for the benefit of the ultimate creation, the piece resistance of creation, which is man. And the earth brought forth grass and vegetation that contained seed according to its own type, and fruit-bearing trees that contained seed, i.e., in the fruit, and God saw that it was good. Again, we have a completed process and um, the completed process does not actually match the commands, for instance the the, the trees here are called an eight osepri, as opposed to in the previous verse where it was pre where it was pre and there are various midrashic material which describe the differences but i 'm just going to focus on the the sense that 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 what we have here is the ability of vegetation to sustain life and to retain um, its own identity. And we will see that the life which needs to be sustained, that this is the foundation. Again, this is schematism. The first three days are all about the foundation for life, and, and and days four to six are about life. And this is the land with its vegetation, which is the foundation for sustaining life, which we'll see will come around on day number six. But for now, v'here vayivoker, yom shlishi. And there was evening and there was morning, day number three. We now come to um, the second stage of creation, as I said, where God populates all of this foundation for life or for animated uh, um, um, uh, uh, things that God creates. Uh, And God said, let there be containers of light or light containers. The word me'orot really means something that holds light in the spread out parts of the skies to separate between the day and the night. And so they, apparently the moon and the stars, should be for signs and seasons and days and years. That is, they were placed in positions in the heavens, in 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 predictable and repetitive positions in the skies, in order to allow seasons and days and years to be predicted. Once again, there are all kinds of questions here. The word otote, or signs, is this an, a mystical sign, some kind of astrological idea that the heavens, the stars, as the moon, somehow have an effect or control worldly events? Or does it just mean that they are purely physical markers? Like when you're sailing, make sure you see the certain star over the horizon in order that you keep track of location on the earth and time on the earth. I think it's the latter. I would avoid any kind of astrological or mystical meaning. But again, please look in the various commentaries, commentaries for all kinds of opinions here. And they should be a light containers and spread out parts of the skies to shed light on the earth. Which means that's the next function. Forget about all just knowing when and where you are on the earth, but uh, making sure there's light on the earth so you can get by. And it was so, meaning the creations, all of these creations exist for their, for the sake of their usefulness in general and their usefulness to man in particular. And now the actualization of all these commands, which comes with an interesting detail, or really a focus of a different kind of function. And God set up the two great light containers, the greater light container to control the day, that would be, of course, the sun, and the lesser of the light containers, which is still great, just lesser than the sun, to control the night, that, of course, would be the moon. And he also created the stars. And he placed them in the stretched out parts of the sky, to light is in the heavens, he placed them in the heavens to light up the The earth, and to control by day and by night, and to separate between the light and the darkness. That is the day and the night. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, day number four. Now there are many difficulties in the text and the translation here, and as a result, there are we we are knee deep in midrashim. Uh, and in various meanings and significances. And again, I, I would simply repeat here um, that the the main goal is to show how God populated his foundations, how he fills light with things that are animated and things that are helpful and functional, and that ultimately all of these things are created for the pièce de résistance of creation, which is man as we shall see. And now let's just move on to day number five, where life is created from and pop, uh, where life is created from the waters and populates the waters, which was the foundation that was created on day number two. Again, in the schematic sense. The foundation, which was in day number two, is populated in its matching day number five. And God said, let the waters team forth with creepy crawlies, that's sheretz with breathing life, nefesh and birds that fly over the earth on the face of the spread out skies, that is the heavens. I think it's cool that the Torah describes the birds not as land creatures ultimately, but that they evolve and spawn out of the waters before taking flight. I'm pretty sure that's accurate from an evolutionary sense, but again, the fact that there are certain scientific accuracies that no man living three and a half thousand years ago could possibly have known unless one had a, a glorious insight into the uh, the creation of life itself through prophecy, the fact that occasionally we get a little bit of a peek into uh, scientific facts, again, that's not the point here. The point here is uh, the religious message. And God created the great lizards and all breathing, crawling life that the waters teemed forth Each according to its own species and all the winged birds according to their species and God saw that it was good. And here's where I am about to get into big trouble by making the following far out assertion. Hataninim hagedolim, the great lizards are the dinosaurs. Now, yes, I know, in the book of Isaiah, the Tanini Magdalene are clearly the Nile crocodiles. But that's probably because when Isaiah was reading Sefer Bereshit, he thought that's what Moshe meant, since he would have no idea what dinosaurs were. But Moses was at a different level of prophecy, of the ability to directly understand what God was saying to him than any other prophet. So when God was receiving the prophecy of creation, I believe that he saw in his mind God's transmission of pictures of these creatures, these dinosaurs roaming the earth, and Moshe wrote down the words, which means literally the great lizards, which is exactly what dinosaur means today, which means that Moshe came up with the best possible translation that anybody could of God's message without having ever seen the creatures that God was talking about. And before you conclude that in completely bananas, which is a possibility, I would like to offer the two following arguments. There are only two unique species or uh, uh, of animals of creations that are mentioned in this entire story of creation. There is man, vayivralu himata adam, and there are the taninim hagdolim, the great lizards, vayivralu himata tanniim hagdolim. So maybe these are crocodiles, but if so, why not? I mean, sure, crocodiles are scary, big creatures, but why not mention whales or elephants or giraffes or any other of the distinctively massive creatures? Why why single out just crocodiles as the only other individual species to mention besides man? Second of all, note the word va'yivra. To create, because when it comes to life, the only two living creations which are, have that word used directly in front of them are man and hataninim hagdolim, which sort of single out those species, those individual distinctive species, as being individual and distinctive. So, maybe I'm crazy. But what could I do? I think that Moshe saw things that no man could have imagined until he started digging up, until we all started digging up and identifying dinosaur bones in the 19th century. And I think Moshe, in his glorious level of prophecy, came up with what is, to my mind, the best description of what could be described, given that he was describing what at the time was unknowable, unimaginable, and indescribable. But he did a great job. job, Hataninim haagdolim. If you don't like that, so, translate it as crocodiles. And God bless them, that is all of this life, all of this water-born or water-born or evolved from water life. Um, and he commanded them or, or, or said to them or essentially willed them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill up the water and the oceans and the birds. They should multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. Day number five comes to a conclusion. On day number six, the earth, which on the third day was uncovered, that is the foundation, was Found, was uncovered and formed, and the vegetation grew upon it, which was necessarily, which was necessary for it to be a true foundation for life. So now, on its schematically matching day number six, the earth is populated with living creatures. And God said, "Let the earth bring forth." Breathing life according to its own species, domesticatable—I think I have that word right—that is animals that can be domesticated, and that's what behemah means. And creepy crawlies—that's remes, the chayta arets and wild animals of the earth, each according to its species. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their species and the domesticatable, not the domesticated animals because they aren't domesticated yet since there's no man to domesticate them but they'll get there according to their species and all the creepy crawlies according to their species that would probably include invertebrates, bugs, that type of thing and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. So after God saw that the previous things were good, which means he came to a completion of the creative process, of a distinctive creative process, we have now gotten to the pièce de résistance of the creative process. And God said, Let us create man in our own image, and and in our and like our own form, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the skies, and the domesticable animals, Or perhaps here, behemoth means all animals and over all the land and over every creepy crawly that crawls on the land. Now, there are a number of difficulties here. Most foremost and forefront, the plural, let us create God in our image. Not to mention the problem of God having an image or form to base man on as a template. Again, To fully explore all of these issues and to to explore them and to resolve them or to give all the possible resolutions is beyond the scope of this lesson. So let me just provide some basics. The plural means most likely the royal we or perhaps the we of taking counsel, which David uses in the book of Samuel. He says there also, let us, even though he's referring to himself. Alternatively, the rabbis saw this as a demonstration of, of the humbleness of God, which we are supposed to emulate Um, That is, as if God is taking counsel with his angels, even though it wasn't necessary, but he wanted to make them feel like they were involved in the greatest of the pièce de of creation. Um, There's a third possibility that Ramban suggests, but I'll I'll save that for the next chapter, because you really need to see the next chapter to understand it. As for God having an image and a form, I think the best thing to say is that it means that God was endowed with God's God-like attributes, that is, the ability to think and to reason and to rise to a higher spiritual level, level, is referring to the intellect and the soul of man. The fact that man man is the piece de response of creation, and in fact, the purpose of this entire creation chapter, is evident from the format of the next verse. Whereas the whole chapter has been very dry and methodical prose. God created this, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he did the other thing. Here, the, for the Torah, for the first time, changes its style into biblical poetry. Biblical poetry is recognizable by its use of synonyms and song-like repetition. And that's exactly what we have in the next verse. Vayivra Elohim Adam Elohim bara and God created, know the word, notice the word bara is used three times in one verse. And God created the man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is poetry, which, stand, which makes it stand out like an island from the surface, water surface of the rest of this chapter. I will avoid the Midrashic understanding of the fact that he creates man and woman here. Um, as sort of one entity. Um, And there's this Midrashic idea that uh, man was originally created as both male and female before being separated in chapter 2. Um, I, w- I would like to say that from the simple sense, chapter two simply presents a different religious view of the same act of creation, and there we will be introduced to how woman is created, and here we just have a klal, a general description that God created mankind, both man and woman, with details to be provided later, and not, the simple shot is not that God created one entity with man on one side and woman on the, other side and God blessed them and God said to them. Notice that's different. God blessed the animals but didn't say to them because one does not speak to animals. But here God speaks to man and he commands them and says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill up the land and conquer it and rule over the fish of the oceans and the birds of the skies and all life which crawls upon the earth. Natati Zorea Zera Bo Zorea Zara God said, Behold, I have given to you every seed bearing vegetation which is on the face of the earth, and I have given you all the seed laden fruit bearing trees, all of which, which will be for you to eat. And so too, that vegetation I have given as food to all the animals of the earth, and the birds of the skies, and the creepy crawlies that have the breath of life in them. And it was so. What this means, of course, is that all living creatures, man included among them, were made to take only vegetation as food. Yes, God created man as vegetarians. Although, as we will see in the story of Noah and the flood, after man saves all the animals, he's given the permission to eat meat. But at this point, now that the process of creation is complete and the earth has its vegetation, that vegetation is there to feed man and animals. And that's the only thing that they should be feeding on, that they were made to feed on. So... We now have the foundation of life, which was now upon the foundation of life, which was the earth and vegetation. We have here created on the sixth day all the things that need and require that foundation of earth and vegetation, being the animals that from the earth, the creepy crawlies, the domestic animals, the non-domesticable animals, and man himself. Vayar lohim et chol tov era, voker Yomashishi, and God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was exceptionally good. And there was evening and there was morning, day number six. Chapter one, if you're taking a look in your Bibles, ends here even though the work week is not completed. Now, the chapters were divided, of course, by a Christian, uh, whose name was Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he's the one who essentially stopped chapter 1 after day number 6 rather than day number 7. Why he does so, and he was a great Bible scholar, and 95 times out of 100... Um, He'll get the chapter divisions right, but why he got it wrong here and sliced day number seven, the Sabbath, from day number six is not clear. He doesn't say why. I would suggest that since the Christian Sabbath, uh, again, the Archbishop of Canterbury lived in the 1200. He was actually involved in in, uh, putting together the Magna Carta for England. Um, Since the Christian Sabbath is on Sunday, which is the beginning of a new week, maybe he wanted to start a new chapter with the Sabbath as if he was starting a new week with the Sabbath as well. In any event, regardless of his reason, um, in one sense... Uh, it's clear that I think there are still two more things that need to be created. One is the idea of rest. This idea of lack of activity needs to be created as well. And more importantly is the idea of kedusha, of sanctity and holiness, of the ability of something physical to take on non-physical characteristics that needs to be created by God, and that is what he creates on the seventh day, even though he never creates anything physical on the second seventh day. We're now in chapter two, verse one. And God completed the heavens or the skies and the earth and all of their hosts, meaning everything in the in and on the heavens, in the skies and on the earth. This ties, of course, to the opening verse. This is clearly an envelope Uh, to the opening verse which says in the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth and God completed on the seventh day the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had made or perhaps all the works with a capital W that he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He made it holy because on it he rested from all the works that he had created to make. So ends the first description or first perspective of God's power over creation, God's creative Uh, process tomorrow we will explore a second perspective of the same process where man is no longer the pièce de résistance and ruler and dominator of creation but he is merely a servant to it and a caretaker of it